Welcome to the Wellness for Educators podcast. I'm your host, Katherine Kennedy. I'm grateful and honored to have Michelle Kinder here to talk with us today. Michelle is a nationally recognized social-emotional health expert and co-author of the book, Whole, What Teachers Need to Help Students Thrive. She is the former executive director of Momentus Institute and is a licensed professional counselor and has worked in children's mental health for more than two decades. Thank you so much for joining me, Michelle. Well, I'm super glad to talk with you. I was excited to get your email just because I think we have parallel passions around wellness and in particular for educators. And I, I think all of us cared so much about that a year ago and we're so worried about our educators. It's part of what led um, Rex Miller and myself and the team to write the book, uh, Whole, What Teachers Need to help students thrive and and now the picture is intensified by all the math teachers out there are going to be so distressed by me but by like a million I mean it's just so it's it's such a 911 situation and I think we've got kind of parallel tracks in terms of what can each of us do to manage our internal world so the external world feels manageable and at the same time engage with the powers that be so that the more structural issues are also attended to. Because I get worried about teachers and people in general feeling like we're saying, hey, just fix this with self-care when there are really massive structural issues at play. So I always like to say that, that, that it's a parallel track. And my expertise, I'm a therapist by trade. Um, and so my expertise is more the, the inside out work, but it, it just has to, it has to go together with, with the shifts in the structural and systemic space. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's so spot on. I, uh, in my second life or whatever you want to call it, um, I am also an online learning researcher and practitioner. And so a lot of the work that's happening right now with schools reopening, I mean, you can see the conversations and the anxiety and the stress that that process and the lack of information and also just so much unknown and so much like you don't have a control you don't have any control over what's happening Um, especially when like you said the systemic stuff it's like the decisions that are being made are kind of like outside of the realm of the educators who are going to be in the classrooms with the students right and so that the unknown space is is hard enough and you know that as a as a therapist like that is typically where a lot of anxiety kind of stems from is like not knowing like oh no what's going to happen in the future what happened in the past and how is it affecting me now but now it's like everybody is in that space of unknown and that lack of control and like trying to find that place of as much as we can letting go but then also that throws into the whole conversation the idea of privilege like (laughs) like 
you know, yeah, you can let it go, but do you have a job? Do you have a place to live? Do you have all of these things that a lot of us take for granted because we automatically have those things, you know, and based on who we are and potentially even the color of our skin, you know? So it's, I think there's so much at play that again, like the lack of control piece is, is really hard. I think um, one of the things that I heard, and I think this is kind of like stems out of what you said as well, is a superintendent recently said to me, you have to Maslow before you bloom. So that idea that you have to have that foundational piece of taking care of yourself based on <laughs> like our hierarchy of needs, those that safety, that happiness, you know, the water, the security, like whatever it happens to be, like all of those things have to be in place before learning can actually take place. And I would love for you to talk about like that kind of work that you do with educators that are struggling with that space of, you know, there's so much about learning gaps happening or it's being said right now, but it's like the learning gaps are going to continue to get bigger if we're not working through people's trauma before we can start to learn again. Mm. Oh my gosh. Like I just, I'm feeling the need to just kind of sit with the truth of that. <laughs> like, just like, oof, right. Like how, how is it serving us to be so captured by the frameworks of our recent past? And everyone is finding that to be, extremely oppressive, terrifying, frightening, a lot of no win. Um, and, and so I have, I like vacillate back and forth every 60 seconds, honestly, between being sort of pulled into that fear-based thinking and which fuels this, this uh, angry, rebellious, righteous anger in me, which I, I don't, I feel like needs space right now. I don't want to like silence that part of me because it's that same part of me that pushes against me being silent or apathetic or sort of dipping into my privilege at the expense of other people's livelihoods and lives. And so I, I, I like and appreciate this angry, rebellious, frustrated person that's showing up. And it's like in constant conversation with this other part of me that I worked really hard to cultivate that's more grounded in kind of the meta spiritual experiences that are offered to us anytime there's crisis. And, you know, th that part of me asks questions like, you know, what, what, what invitations are opening up for us in, in this space of extreme uncertainty and extreme discomfort that we were completely blind to in the absence of this collective timeout we've all been put in. Can we engage our imaginations around education and around equity, justice in a way that was completely untenable a year ago? That part of me is like, oh, whoa. And then the other part of me just gets swept up. So anything I have to say around this topic feels, I feel really tentative about because I feel like I'm so in the soup. Like I just don't have any 
like true clarity or wisdom. And honestly, I don't trust too many people who do right now. You know, it's like, I want people, I want to be in the soup with people. I want to be in conversation with people who are grappling. I want to be kind of positioning myself to be receiving and learning from people who haven't been blind to the truth about our education system, our country, the injustices, the inequity that they've spent their lives fighting for it while I spent my life completely blind to how my long straw is directly connected to someone else's short straw and my my inaction around those injustices are is complicity so like I I all of that is stirring which I don't even know if I answered your question (laughs) no and and I think that that's the case it's it's just that place of we really don't have answers. And like you said, you're in the soup. So you're listening, you're learning. And I feel like a lot of us who are in the same, that same space. And I I think that that's the space that we need to be in right now, but it's like the constant and evolving type space of, and oh, like that aha moment, like, oh, I understand now that that's the connection with this. Like you were saying, like your long straw versus somebody like at the same time, somebody has the short straw and like, what are the implications for that? And how can you be active in changing that for and being a voice for those who still have that short straw you know it's like that kind of figuring it out as we go i think is essentially where it's at at this point so i appreciate i appreciate your sharing your thoughts on it because it is uh um we're in the in-between space i feel like and we're getting to hopefully a space of understanding and and moving forward with some change that is has been needed for a very long time i think yeah i think so i hope for that i hope that this is opening opening up something that we can't yet imagine that will provide a sense of shared lightness and freedom and joy that is comparable to the intensity that we all feel now. And to me, the difference is the for all. Many of us were experiencing a lot of lightness, freedom, joy, And it had to do with our blindness to the oppression of other people. And so now we're in this space of extreme intensity and discomfort. And if we go from this space to the next space that is some sort of, you know, incrementally different space from where we were, what a miss. You know, so can we go from this space to a wholly new imagined space where I can't feel light and free unless that is offered to everyone? Yep, 100% agree with that. So I'm going to shift us to that space of uh, your journey. So like your journey really to the field of education and and specifically your passion, um, which we started to talk about a little bit, but your passion for educator wellness. So where, like what brought you into education? What brought you to educator wellness? Yes. So my background, I'm a missionary kid. I grew up in Guatemala 
and was born there. And I also was round two. So I was the fifth of six kids and my parents were totally over it <laughs> by the time we were around. So we kind of raised ourselves and we have a great debate about which batch turned out better. And, you know, of course my vote is for the batch that was like this free range. Anyway, so grew up in Guatemala, then came to the States. And that was, of course, very shaping, like growing up as a third culture kid, incredibly shaping. From birth, there were multiple ways of addressing everything um, because my parents had grown up in Texas. And so that was their culture, white Texans. And then around us, our community, were Guatemalan families. And so every single thing was, there were multiple ways. So that just kind of got hardwired for me, sort of an interest in diversity and appreciation for it, of comfort with complexity. All of that got baked into me. And then I came to the States for boarding school and high school and then college and grad school studied psychology and worked with families as a therapist for years. But my, one of my, I guess my second job out of grad school or third job out of grad school, I was part-time a school counselor and part-time family therapist at an organization that I ended up staying with for 20 years, Momentous Institute, and led the last six years I was there. And having that job where I split my roles was so important. And I, I was already, my lens was always mental health, but having that time embedded in the school um, as, as one of their team members, it just taught me so much about educators and what is asked of them and what they're made of and what they care about. And I can't put into words my appreciation for educators. Like I, I can't, it's visceral for me. It's, an, it's, it's one of the biggest misses in our country, I think, is, is our frame around educators. It's just a huge miss. So I went on to work at that organization and our, one of our principal sort of themes, it's a hundred year organization. So they've been around a long time. And one of their principal themes was this intersection of education and mental health. And really acknowledging that, in, that the pendulum has swung too far in attending to test scores and grades and academic outcomes and had really begun to ignore from a trauma-informed approach the social-emotional health of children. And so that became the hallmark of Momentous Institute very organically and authentically. Uh, and I learned so much from all of my colleagues there about what that looks like and how that can be put into practice and how it can not be like a bolt-on, but really embedded into every interaction and the fabric of the community. So my roots are in the wellness space, in the mental health space, and, and I've worked with educators now for more than 20 years. And, I, and I'll just add one thing, like in our work around social emotional health at Momentous Institute, it started out pretty child-focused, as did 
as it did across the country. And one of our learnings was how critical the parallel process is. And that if we aren't attending to the social emotional health of the adults in the building, it's an unrealistic ask that they attend to the social emotional health of the children. And that's what the book that uh, Rex and the team and I wrote is about. How do you create environments where teachers can thrive so that students can thrive? I absolutely love it. I've been taking notes <laughs> to kind of circle back with you on some, just some wonderings and questions as you were establishing this space um, for the educators. So one of the things that I've noticed is there are huge generational differences in the way that we look at mental health. Like I remember my own father who had, um, was diagnosed with bipolar disorder that at that time, which was like, I don't know, like 1980s, it was very much a stigma to what he would say, like, I don't want to go see a shrink, um, that kind of stigma. And I feel like that there's still some of that in our culture. I think we're getting better about it, that it's okay to say that you need help and it's okay to feel, um, but there are huge stigmas around that. And I think the other thing is like, as you were thinking about this, and I loved it when you were saying that there was an embedded and like trying to embed the mental health rather than have it be that add-on, because I think a lot of places are thinking of it as an add-on, but I think like you were saying, it has to be that foundational piece. It has to be an embedded part of the fabric of the community in order for it to really be a priority because it can become easily a secondary thing, as you mentioned. And my fear for what this, a lot of the school reopening pieces, and I know that wellness is one of those things that popped up in the spring, you know, based on everybody kind of being thrown into the unknown, that that was something that was missing. And I do see a lot of reopening plans because I, I, I'm part of a group that does kind of like that consulting for those that there are a lot of schools who are thinking about well-being but I'm hoping that they're doing so in such a way where it isn't just an add-on that it is really really like you said the fabric of what they're doing and I, I wonder in your work how hard did it or how hard was it to shift the way that a lot of educators might have been doing things and or the way that they saw things? Was there like kind of like a struggle, um, push-pull type of situation where you were trying to help change mindsets based on maybe generational differences or just the way people thought about mental health and, and having it not be a priority? Mm -hmm. You know, I think that having social emotional health prioritized on par with academics is more homeostasis for teachers and educators like that's that that there's a soul match there for all of us like that's that makes sense like holistic engagement that's relationship based and all of that is what most educators do so naturally and so I think there's exceptions to everything, but very often the reasons teachers 
and educators got squeezed into behaving in a different manner was more top down from policies and what got measured and what was tied to pay and bonuses and you know all of those things created a fear-based environment where teachers felt like it was either or and policies supported that it was either or and so we just started making decisions that came from a place of panic i think and um, whittling down human beings into a, well, are they reading at this level by third grade? You know, like, it's like all those metrics matter, but that's not how you, that's not how we engage with children of privilege. You know, by and large, it's not what we would be okay with, with our own child. And so, pushing people to, to sort of pull up from those fear-based, really narrow definitions of success, which often go through the filter of we know best for communities that we're not a part of, and we're going to impose this on you to help you. You know, that this is like 10 podcasts in one, but like, you know, like, I don't mean to get too obtuse, but there's so many layers to why educators have moved away from that way of engaging. It's not a hard sell to educators usually. If they feel supported in doing it, they're like, oh yeah, this is home actually. This is how I would, I would know to do this work based on my expertise and my training. I've just been shoehorned into this other way of being. So yeah, I don't know if that answers it, but. Yeah, totally, totally. And I, I think I, there was a meme that one of my friends shared on Facebook recently that had something to do with, it doesn't matter if my child is on a second grade level right now, what matters is that they're alive and healthy. <laughs> like it's, it's that idea that we have to progress at a certain pace or so, so like the big shift right now or has been for a while is the competency-based or proficiency-based education um, so that children can progress in a way that makes sense to them so that they're not kind of forced to move on in curriculum when they really didn't build an understanding for whatever they were just working on. So I think like that's huge. And I, I do think um, one of the things you said right at the beginning of this was that prioritizing of relationship building. And I think that is so important, no matter what space you're in, whether you're in, and again, with the reopening of schools situation, there are some that are going completely online. There are some that are going blended, hybrid, whatever you want to call it, and then also face-to-face -face fully. But, you know, likely if COVID surges happen, then they'll be going online again. And just hoping that, you know, like you said, educators already do this so well in terms of knowing how to build relationships with their students and meaningfully build relationships with them, because that is really the foundation upon which all of the other pieces, engagement, um, motivation really come into play is when you have a trusting relationship with the people that you're working with. And I think that is huge. I think in anything that we do, relationship building is huge, but 
especially right now with the trauma that people have experienced um, with COVID, that it's going to have to be really about the relationship building. I think as an online learning researcher, one of the things that I fear, and I, and I saw it a lot happening in the, uh, in the spring was that, you know, people are equating what happened in the spring to online learning. And I'm thinking to myself, it wasn't that. It was totally crisis or whatever you want to call it, remote learning. It's not online learning. Like we've been doing research in this area for a really long time and know really what works. And so hoping that whatever training needs to happen uh, with educators, that kind of makes that shift to online learning. Because again, like it's not about recreating what you have in a physical classroom online. It's more online learning becomes really a small group and one-on-one type situation rather than like the whole classroom. Like I can't even imagine having a whole classroom of like kids at the same time on Zoom. I think it's a lot more uh, and and it's easier to build relationships when it's more one-on-one and small group type situations. So yeah, so I do, I love that you're saying that because that is what educators do best. And I think as long as we're doing that kind of approach is that always, it's not about the technology when it comes to this type of learning. It's like, it really has to be about the relationships first that we build that can then essentially build the foundation for all of the learning that has to happen too. But mm, Totally. And, um, and the piece that can't get underscored enough to me is, again, that parallel process piece. So in the same way that we feel that 911 sense of urgency around kids are not okay. We have got to connect. We've got to show up. It's got to be relationship-based. We've got to help them develop a coherent narrative about this last year and the year to come. All of the things we know. The same is true for teachers. Like, we can only give what we have. And if our teachers are feeling like completely depleted and under-resourced, then it's it's just not a fair ask for them to triple their workload and triple how they're expected to show up and, you know, all in the face of, in some cases, tremendous fear about their own safety. And, and what's disheartening is, because I don't pretend to know the answers to all that complexity, but what's disheartening is when the strategy is to just blow past it as if it's not happening. Because I, I like, I trust that if, if we could acknowledge the truth of the moment and then bring the right people to the table with a lot of great representation from educators, not just people 17 steps removed making decisions that affect them, then, then we could come up, we could reimagine what does 2020-2021 school year look like in the face of what we're actually facing instead of this insane like tyranny of incremental change, sort of like, well, we'll just tweak it here and tweak it there. And, and, and by the way, you know, don't, don't prepare for anything because you're not going to know what's going to happen until 24 hours before it does like there's so many ways that we're we are setting up our educators and then they'll get the blowback when things are rocky but had we 
accepted the reality of what is ahead of us in March, February, and used those months where we had to shut down to come up with the best possible plan for this coming school year, we'd be in a totally different place. I mean, and there, you know, that's a parallel process too. If the pandemic had been handled differently, we'd be in a totally different place. Yeah, so, so that, that would be one of the things I hope the educators that are listening can do some thinking about is like, how do you, how do you hold the poles of grounding yourself, actively seeking to stay grounded, resourced, supported, like all the things we know we have to do to just weather this personally and hold that pole with the tension of the other pole of taking up space in the political conversation. Like we need educators to take up space and help guide us forward and also sound the alarms to what is tone deaf, all of that. 100% agree. I couldn't agree with you more on that. And I, I do think based on what I'm seeing in a lot of the forums online, they are doing that. They are doing just that. They're making their voice heard. The other thing too that I think is really important that I've seen a lot of is that educators at the teacher level, because I think a lot of times, like you mentioned, like the decisions that are made are, are at the levels where they're not in the classroom. <laughs> and so they're not really understanding like what are the implications of the decisions that you're making on the educators who are in the classrooms with the students. And so mm -hmm. when they are invited to the table and, and empowered to have a voice and have a choice, I think that's huge. I've, I've seen it more and more lately, but I'd love to see it more so. And then the other piece to it too, I think, and especially in the spring, we, I think the whole entire educational system was really leaning hard on caregivers mm -hmm. and really having them be part of, as we know, like in research, it's really important to have caregiver involvement. But that again is a space of privilege, like whether or not, I mean, if your parents both work and they're essential workers, like they're not going to be around. Um, you might be having help from a sibling or an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent or other like community members, you know, it's, I think that having that support for them and also having them at the table is going to be crucial. And a lot of the, the reopening plans that I've seen come through my email have been putting that out there, like the caregiver, informing caregivers, but also supporting caregivers and having different ways in which to partner with community spaces in order to better support the students, but also better support those caregivers, especially if they are, again, those essential workers or, um, you know, people who have to care for other children, like wh whatever their situation is, I think there's just even more creative thought and also invitations when there weren't before happening, which is, is encouraging, but I'd love to see more of that happening. Yeah. Oh, that's great. It really is encouraging. And, and I think 
I think in times when you are trusting that people are making decisions about your profession from a place of integrity, you wait for an invitation to come to the table. When that's not happening, you build your own table and you figure out ways to elevate and amplify those voices because like it's so heartening when the systems are to be trusted and the tables are getting widened and opened. It's not happening everywhere. And I think for educators where it's happening, step in, be bold, be brave, trust your expertise, trust yourself. Where it's not happening, I think that's where we need to use the power of numbers and voice and create our own tables and and make sure teacher teacher voices one way or another are really informing how we're thinking about everything and caregiver voices to your point yeah it's so complex yep hugely so throughout your journey what were some of those aha moments that you had while working with educators when it came to their wellness mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the biggest aha is the parallel process, that, that if you aren't taking care of the adults in the building, can't take care of the kids. But another aha has to do with how self-care can get weaponized um, and wellness can get weaponized. There's this great quote. Let me see if I can read it without my glasses. Uh, it's Nikita Valerio. She says, shouting self-care at people who actually need community care is how we fail people, which that, that is another big aha for me is how do we track on the community care aspect for educators and don't just put it all on them. I don't see this happening a lot with educators, but there's definitely a section of our country where self-care is also used as an exit ramp for staying in the heat of things. I don't see that with educators. I think educators tend to not access even the basic space to resource themselves. So probably for them, it leans more in the direction of no, for real, like you you are worthy, you are valuable, you're valued. You do not have to run on empty. Like that's not That's not part of the contract that you feel this depleted all the time, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think, too, the other thing that you mentioned that kind of got me thinking about the idea that educators, like the idea that self-care is selfish and then also the idea that self-care, the exit ramp type thing, it's it's interesting. It's like, I almost think it can also be a place of, and maybe this is what you meant by exit ramp. It's like, yeah, if you, you can take care of yourself, but the systemic issue and going back to your quote about the systemic issue in the beginning, it's like, there's a systemic issue. I want this to change so that maybe I won't need as much self-care to, t- you know, to deal with all of the crazy that this systemic issue is having on me. Yes. Well, those parallel tracks. And I think where we see it used as a personal exit ramp, I mean, the example I'm thinking about are white women opting out of the discomfort of uh, being in the anti-racism work. 
So so sometimes we can say, oh, this is too hard. I need to take care of myself so I'm not going to dot, dot, dot. So that would be, but again, even as I'm saying that, I'm like, I don't see that as our educators. Like that just doesn't feel like it, it resides in that space very often. Mo- more often it's um, that self-sacrificial that I think is almost always relationship-based, like deep love for my students and a desire for a more just and equitable world for them and or my children or my, you know, all, all of the kids that were devoted to. So... Yeah, yeah. And I I think building on what you mentioned, what do you see helping with that idea of the secondary traumatic stress situation that educators are put into by hearing the stories of their students, of their students' families, of even their colleagues? What have you heard and seen in your experiences that you would share about how best to kind of approach that that situation. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up because that is such a very real dynamic that we are going to see intensified significantly over this next year. One of the frameworks I'm using right now is that no one is okay. No one is okay in July, August of 2020. Everyone is experiencing some sort of trauma. Uh, little T or big T. People who are in emotional first responder roles like teachers are experiencing their own sense of grief and distress and stress and not feeling okay or being okay, financial hardship, all that's coming with uh, with 2020. And then they are holders of that pain and suffering that the students are experiencing. So the first thing is to acknowledge that that is real. That secondary trauma is real and it moves into our bodies and it makes us sick and it makes us reactive and angry and depressed and anxious and all the things. So acknowledging it's real is the first. And I I really like the concept can't remember who I first heard this from, so I can't give it proper credence. It's not original, but the concept that emotions need motion and that, you know, if you're experiencing secondary trauma, you have to find some way to move that through you, Um, whether that's physical exercise, talking, processing, you know, creativity, somehow those emotions have to move through you or they literally get stuck in your body, um, as you know. So I think acknowledging that it's real, finding, making sure that you are using some strategies for it to move through. For me, a piece of that is balancing out your yin and your yang strategies and noting when you are tilting in the direction of one or another, uh, I'm a runner and I also meditate and do yoga. And there are times in my life when I rely heavily on the running, the more yang way that I move emotions through and times in my life when I rely more heavily on meditation and yoga. And, and I ideally have all of it going on daily. Like that's my grad level self-care, like 
fill the tank up every day so that you have that resilience and that bounce. But for example, over the last two months, I've felt really connected to the running because in some ways it was almost, it matched the intensity of these moments. And so it was like, it, it energetically matched. So it was like, this situation is punishing, I'm going to be punishing myself even and how I move it through my body. Not that my running is punishing, but you get my point. It's like, and there was a time period, I had a three and a half year streak of meditating every single day. And after George Floyd's murder, I couldn't do it. I couldn't. And I, you know, I'd been through a lot of stuff in the last three and a half years, but that made me so uncomfortable. I couldn't even sit with my own self for a while. And, and so it's just sort of that for teachers who are nav navigating secondary trauma, sort of like tracking, how am I taking care of myself? If I can only express through these yang strategies, what do I need to do to create some healing and some space so that this yin piece can come back in so there's more balance? Um, I think just being in constant conversation with yourself around those strategies and then get help. Like if you need to talk to someone, you're one of all of us. <laughs> like I just don't know anyone who at some point in their life doesn't need therapy. And especially if you're navigating your own traumas and the secondary trauma uh, of little people that you love. Yeah, I everything that you just said. <laughs> the emotions need movement. The the person that I think about, we're actually doing a a book talk uh, or book chat on Bessel van der Kolk. Uh, the body keeps the score. So similar, yeah. <laughs> Does he say the issues in my tissue? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. 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 I love That's a great book. Powerful. It's one of my favorites. And I, I, I love the idea of also you mentioning like checking in with yourself and like, you know, being, becoming more body aware as you do your movements. And like when you were saying kind of picking and choosing what your body needs at that time, are you feeling depleted? Okay. So then the yin side is the way that you need to go. And if you're feeling that you need to move, then, you know, listening to your body and, and doing that as needed. Um, I think it's really important um, to have that check-in moment. Um, so I think we've covered everything. Um, is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you would really like to share? Oh, this has been great. Thank you for having this for people as a resource. I'll, I'll end with this one quote, and I don't know who to attribute this to, but somebody shared it with me during a really intense grief period in my life, and it really stuck. And it's a simple phrase. Now's the time for strength. Do the things that make you strong. And I would offer that to all the educators out there. Like, what's being asked of you is unfathomable that needs to be said and and yet it is true it is happening and so now is a time for strength figure out what makes you strong and do it do it every day give yourself that gift um it's going to be a long year 
It surely is. Um, Michelle, thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And I hope to have you on again whenever you are, are willing to do so. <laughs> My pleasure. It's such a delight to get to know you. And thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for joining us. Stay tuned for more episodes of Wellness for Educators podcast.